Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Asia Raiden is here. Actually, Asia Raiden was here like in March because this is going to be a replay of a great conversation I had with her about a lot of different topics that are still quite relevant uh, that I wanted to share with you again. The big news today, we think, is that Elon Musk, who I can't stand, is looking like he's going to buy Twitter and that the deal is going to go through supposedly today. Friday, uh, the 28th. I'm recording this on the 27th. And as of this recording, we don't know. In the event that this goes through, you know, there's been lots of talk of, hey, we need alternate uh, forms of communication. I would just like to encourage everybody to sign up for my newsletter on Substack. If you just go to gregoliar.com, you can do that. If you're not already signed up to the newsletter, I update it three times a week on Tuesday, on Friday, and then on Sunday, we do the Sunday pages, which is kind of a literary foray. Signing up to the newsletter is free. Everything that I write is, is, is free. This podcast is free. If you want to subscribe, uh, that's where you pay $5 a month, $50 a year. I would, of course, appreciate it. But today, I just want to uh, urge everybody who uh, wants to stay in touch to uh, sign up for the free newsletter, just so you know you have access to what I'm saying and stuff like that in the event that Elon just pulls the plug on this whole thing. I wrote a little thing this morning. I'm going to read it to you now. I might change it before I post, but it, you'll get the general idea. So there's a, a three-panel Garfield comic that ran on New Year's Day of what would be the last full year of Jimmy Carter's presidency. So the first panel, you have the the, the Google-eyed little Garfield is tucked in that that weird bed that he has. It actually looks like a litter box with a blanket on top. So he's in there, and there's the little thought bubble, and he says, "So this is 1980." And in the second panel, he extends his paw, 
And then the third panel, the paws back retracted and he says or thinks feels about the same. And, you know, this is what I'm hoping for. If and when this must deal goes through, you know, that nothing changes. But, you know, 1980 brought the election of Ronald Reagan, yanking the political pendulum to the right, setting the U.S. on its current collision course with fascist self-destruction. So it seems like maybe not right. Like, I don't know if Garfield is right here. You know, I know not everybody is on Twitter and people don't understand it. It is the most important of the social media platforms because it's the best and fastest source of targeted news, both here in the U.S. and in countries where, you know, the regimes don't have it blocked. So no matter what you're interested in, whether it's it's the news about the war in Ukraine or the legal stuff involving Trump and the special master and all that or Welsh rugby or Dancing with the Stars or whatever – you curate your feed and then you get information about that subject like really fast and really efficiently in a way that that just nothing else can. There's both immediacy and there's intimacy because you're you're getting stuff directly from sources that you know are the sources, you know, whether it's celebrities or newsmakers or journalists that are writing the articles or whatever. Twitter is like the scouts in the military, right? The newspapers or the army, but the scouts go on ahead and check out what's what's happening. So, you know, that's what it is. And, and everybody sort of gathers together and it's basically the Tower of Babel. You know, it's a modern day Tower of Babel. Little story. A few years ago, I was following the Michael Cohen trial. Okay. And they had a courtroom reporter. I can't remember which one was live tweeting what was going on. In other words, just sending out tweets every few minutes, updating anybody, wa anybody watching Twitter, what was happening live in the courtroom. So they were talking about who the clients were of Michael Cohen and when they announced that Sean Hannity was client number three, I mean, I couldn't even handle it. I was <laughs> I was beside myself with, I guess, joy. I don't know. But that's the sort of thing. I knew that like within, within the verse chorus of a pop song, I knew that this was happening. It was immediate that I knew that this was happening. And that's just not something you get. You used to, it used to be you had to watch the nightly news or read about it in the paper the next day if they even covered this particular little thing, which wasn't that germane to the overall context of what the court case was about. So Musk, okay, it seems insane that he'd blow like $44 billion just to blow something up, right? But like we watched him tank Tesla uh, and, and why? Because he couldn't keep his fucking mouth shut. He's just like raving like some nerd frat boy on ketamine. And um, also, it's not his money. It's like Saudi money. It's 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 uh, Emirati money, we think. Maybe it's Chinese money. I don't know. But it's not like he's taking his own money and doing this. People are giving him money to do it. So he's just the pasty, punchable face of the fascist insurgency. And you've seen, you know, as we get closer to the date, and he's a super troll, this guy. He's such a fucking troll. He's just, he's fluffing Putin. He's fluffing Xi in China. And, you know, people are serious people, not just me. People who know stuff about NATSEC are, are wondering if he's registered as a foreign agent under FARA, which is, you know, what he's supposed to do. And then, of course, he's like trolling about being cozying up to Donald Trump and now Kanye West. And I mean, he may as well have useful idiot branded on his forehead in Afrikaans. Actually, the word idiot is the same in both languages. So, you know, that's that's what everybody would understand. So, I don't know. I feel like the question isn't, will he sabotage Twitter, but how? So, laying off three quarters of the workforce, as he said he would do, you know, that would be a pretty good way to start blowing the shit up, right? Charging for the service. He's talked about that before, too. That would drive away a lot of the users and sort of reduce engagement, kind of like an exploding Tesla. He could replatform Trump and, like, 
horrible chaos agents like Chuck Johnson and just gin up the anger and the rage that's already there. He could amplify the fascist accounts. I mean, Twitter already does that, so he could amplify them more. He could verify the bad actors, um, which is something Jack Dorsey used to do. You know, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, Michael uh, Michael Hayden there wrote, you know, great pieces about studying how Twitter did that with people like Jack Posobiec. He could take away blue checks from people who don't toe the Muscovite party line. You know, me. He could tweak the algorithm so we don't see the accounts we want to and just force other shit down our throats. Um, he could sell the data. I mean, the DMs are there. Any any direct messaging you have, he has access to now. He could just fucking sell it on the dark web. What does he fucking care? Or he could simply sack the entire support staff and play his virtual reality fiddle while Twitter burns. So 11 days before what may be the last fair election in this country, the federal government should not permit a vital social media company to be scooped up by a shady character with a maturity level of a second grader. I mean, this is a South African who's, whose father owned a fucking emerald mine, right? Using investment capital from dictatorships in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I mean, it's a national security issue. But the thing is, there's lots of things the federal government should not permit, but seems incapable, frustratingly, of putting a stop to. Twitter's been really good to me, okay? I have Twitter to thank for most of my success in, in this endeavor of, of getting the word out about, you know, the bad guys, whatever you want to call it. Um, Twitter helped me locate my readers, my sources. I've made great friendships through Twitter. You know, I've learned so much about so many things and it's, it's just fucking depressing that this loathsome, artless clown is buying it. It's like watching a beloved restaurant close its doors, like when, when CBGB's went out of business, you know, or your childhood home being bulldozed or, you know, back in the book of Genesis when the Tower of Babel imploded. It's like the end of Chinatown where Noah Cross winds up with Catherine. Oh, it sucks. And there's not a damn thing we can do about it other than, you know, let it go, Jake. It's Chinatown. And I don't think there, there are any other social networks. I know people are talking about this Tribell or whatever it is. I've heard from a bunch of people that that's not really trustworthy. And I don't have the fucking energy to build new networks, you know. So that's why I say, you know, please just sign up for my, uh, for my free newsletter you know, I, I send out things three times a week and that's it. And if you want to just, you can figure out a way to put the Gmail in some other folder if you don't want to hear from me that often, I'm sure. But I feel like it's a good it's a good way to stay in touch just in case something wonky happens here. But I'm going to keep doing the podcasts. I'm going to keep doing the Substack columns. I'm going to keep, you know, being on the 5-8. And tonight we have a really great 5-8. We have a Halloween special of the 5-8. Uh, you know, we're going to have a lot of guests. It's going to be a lot of fun. Something we haven't tried before. So please tune into that at 5 Pacific, 8 o'clock Eastern tonight. Meantime, I'm going to be like Garfield. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to stay in my little, my little box and hope against hope that the new boss is the same as the old boss. Because he wasn't, you know, a picnic either. So I don't know, guys. 11 days to the election. This happening doesn't feel great. But, you know, who knows? Maybe it'll be a good thing. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll be right back with Asia Raiden. We open to a hellscape. A city, New York, in ruins. Rubble. Newspapers blowing in the wind. Dead bodies. And when the lamb opened one of the seals, I saw a white horse, and he went forth conquering into conquer. Close shot on one of the papers. Will Putin nuke us? And when he had opened the second seal, there went out another horse that was red, and there was given unto him a great sword. Cut to Moscow. 
death and devastation. Nothing survives. Not a living thing. And when he opened the third seal, I beheld a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. Now in Washington, complete annihilation. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I saw a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. Slowly, we zoom in on a pile of debris. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. We hear the sound of clawing, scraping. A manhole cover opens. Now pops a man in a black robe. And I beheld when he opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. His face is out of focus as we watch him climb out. In his hand are some documents. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Close shot on his face, the last human being alive on earth. It's Merrick Garland. And he is holding the last document to be unsealed. An indictment. I'm ready, he says. I'm ready to indict Donald Trump. This fall, Dilatory Pictures presents End Times Attorney General. Rated R. Asia Raiden, welcome back to Prevail. Thank you. So you lost an award to Obama? I did. That bastard, he has all the awards and he needed one more. So what is this? This is the narration of the of the book? Yeah, they're called Audis. They're like um, Belly they're like the awards they give out for uh, audibles and, you know, audiobooks. And yeah. he and I and Katie Couric and Richard Marks were up for best narrator by author. That's such a crazy collection of people. Isn't that okay. a weird collection? Yeah. yeah. I was actually feeling pretty confident about beating the other two, but then I was like, mm, they're just going to give it to Obama. They're going to give it to Obama. Yeah. And I thought, well, it'll be fun to lose to Obama. And I was wrong. It wasn't fun. I cried. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I demanded a cigarette and then I demanded an award. And then my older sister was like, this is why no one takes you seriously. So this is, this is for people that don't know, this is, this is the, audiobook of The Truth About Lies, which is your book that we talked about last time you were on yeah. the show, which talks about lying and liars and, and and stuff like that. And I remember you telling me that your writing process is that you talk into your phone and then write that way anyway. So I'm sure the audiobook is almost like the original of the, <laughs> you know, it's not like me trying to put together an audiobook where I'm mispronouncing the Russian names and stuff like that. Like it's, it, it, it's almost the original source. So you got to mispronounce the Russian names or people think you're a secret Russian spy. I know. Like Tucker Carlson, man, do those names just roll off his tongue, but he can't say Kamala. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was a little like that because I do. I, I talk into my phone and then I transcribe, I email it to myself and cut and paste. It's very professional. Good. That's, I, I, I couldn't do that. I, I can type faster than I can think, but I can talk slower than I think. So it wouldn't work for me that way, but it's fascinating the, the way people have their. I can talk faster than I think, which gets me in trouble a lot. <laughs> okay, so the second thing you have, there's a documentary called "Nothing Lasts Forever." Which, oh yeah, it came out yesterday. It's it South out Southwest. Yeah, we're we're um we're recording this on Sunday, March 13th. By the way, so in case we mention something, the world could be you know a nuclear hellscape by the time this airs. Hopefully not, but um. <laughs> You know, just in case. So, well, that would uh, really, really mess up my plans for my documentary. So, 
Let's it, hope not. it would mess up a lot of things. So, okay. So this is a documentary about diamonds. Hence nothing yeah. less of it. Yeah. So tell, tell us how, how did you get involved with this? Well, I wrote a book before the truth about lies called stoned, which everyone assumes is about drugs or maybe my young adulthood in Hollywood, but actually is about behavioral economics and jewels. Um, and one chapter is about the invention of the engagement ring and how basically no one had them until World War, just after World War II. And De Beers, having obtained a monopoly on all of the diamond mines in the world, was not allowed to do business in the US because we still cared about antitrust laws at that point. But all of the money after World War II had shifted to the US. There were no more Romanovs to sell tiaras to, and no more aristocratic families in England. They'd lost their money. So they tried to figure out how to sell diamonds to Americans. But because of the GI Bill and the New Deal, it was all the money, but it was very diffuse. Everybody just had like a little bit. So they invented a product and the product was the engagement ring. It held a small diamond and they still weren't allowed to do business here, but it didn't matter because anytime you bought a diamond, it was theirs. And they hired an advertising company to convince people that you're not married if you don't have a diamond engagement ring and that this is a real thing and it's been true forever. And they sort of pioneered product placement and, and marketing research and they just, they made it up and <laughs> it worked so well. No one remembers it, that the diamond ring, the diamond engagement ring is about as old as the microwave oven. And it's, it's yeah. not this old tradition. And what's amazing about it that I revisited in my new book, The Truth About Lies, is that it's such an effective long con that even when you show it to people, they still don't care and they still want a diamond. They still feel the same way about diamonds. So that's worked really well for De Beers for a long time. And this first book I wrote um, was very widely read. And the director of this documentary was working on a story about synthetic diamonds. Mm -hmm. And he reached out to me and wanted to talk. And I was like, boy, would I love to talk to somebody about synthetic diamonds. <laughs> because in fact, he he felt that in working on this documentary, he had uncovered a big secret about synthetic diamonds being mixed in with natural diamonds when they're cut deliberately. They're, they're contaminating the supply and you can't tell them apart. Right. And the first thing I said to him was everybody knows and nobody cares in regard to the jewelry industry and the diamond industry. Everybody knows about it. It's been going on for a long time and it's, it's worse than you think. I mean, if you care whether you have a synthetic diamond or not. In Surat, which is the city in India where they do all the diamond cutting, I mean, you imagine that happens in fancy offices in Antwerp, but it doesn't. It happens in something more like sweatshops in India. Um, they take huge amounts of synthetic diamonds that are produced in China, and China's been insisting for a long time, they only produce small brown industrial diamonds. Turns out that's not true. No way. no way. Yeah, no way. Yeah, no way. They were lying. And they've been making tons of white gem quality diamonds for who knows how long. And then they sell them to the diamond cutters and the diamond cutters cut them like diamonds and mix them in with the regular diamonds. And there's really no way to tell them apart. Like even the best gemologist on the planet Earth can't tell them apart. Well, no, not without very expensive specialized machinery. OK. And um you can't do that to every diamond that 
goes through your hands. And even if you could, I don't want to ruin the ending for anybody who's going to see it, but even if you could, spoiler, um, the people who own that machinery, that's the same people who don't want people to question whether or not they might have a synthetic diamond. Ah, so they are okay. in no way incentivized to make that technology affordable or put it in the hands of lots of people. And these are companies that sell natural diamonds like De Beers, for instance. Okay. And, um, you know, they, the, the part of the story that really kills me is there's this big dust up between natural diamonds and synthetic diamonds and people who have a stake in natural diamonds insist that it's destroying the psychology of diamonds if you can just manufacture them and they're fake and they're garbage and you don't want them. And the people who seem to have a controlling interest in synthetic diamonds insist they're more ecologically friendly, they're definitely conflict-free, they're exactly the same thing. To be clear, these aren't fake diamonds. These are just lab-grown diamonds. It's like, it's like um, agriculture. You know, instead yeah. of foraging for wild food, you planted it and you grew it. The thing is, those independent synthetic diamond producers needed a lot of money. And guess who paid for it? The same people who own the natural diamonds. De Beers has one of the largest synthetic diamond producers in the world, Element 6. And the RDIF, which I'm sure you're familiar with, it's uh, basically a, a giant Russian state investment fund. Right, sure. Put up a significant amount of the capital for Diamond Foundry, which is the big one here in the US. And it's the one Leonardo DiCaprio is an investor in in the face of. And they don't discuss the fact that they took all of that money from the same people who own Al Rosa, the biggest diamond mine in the world. So it's a shell game. They're acting like they're fighting with each other but they're the same people. And they've started sort of a narrative war with themselves to what end is interesting, but I'm, I've now given away way. I remember what Mad, in this documentary. Mad Magazine had a thing back in like when I was like in elementary school um, about how like the cola wars of Coke versus Pepsi were all manufactured mm -hmm. and it was designed to just knock like RC Cola out of business. So that, you know, at the end of the day, there will only be two companies. So it's sort of sneaky, brilliant, and it, and it does break everybody's brain. And I guess at the end of the day, who who cares? But um, I'm thinking about movies and, and diamonds and how they appear in pop culture. And it's just it's so there. I mean, in everything, you know, from it, well, it was deliberate. It was it was yeah. the original advertising campaign mm -hmm. and all others that came after it copied it. Yeah. Um, you know, from, from Diamonds Are Forever, which is the, you know, the Ian Fleming novel and a very, very good and underrated uh, Sean Connery Bond film. A very fun one. I watched it fairly recently for like the millionth time, but I hadn't watched in a while. And it holds up. It's good. Um, and that's all about, you know, smuggling diamonds here and there. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's an important element of it. I mean, there are so many reasons when you say, and ultimately, who cares? I agree with you as someone in the jewelry industry. A diamond is a diamond. And, and I actually think they got me on camera in the film saying they're all exactly the same and none of them are really worth anything. It's just you've been duped. But, you know, so I have no beef with synthetic diamonds as a jeweler. But what it is, is you can't tell them apart. 
and you can't tell if they're real and they're all identical and they're very small and that makes them a perfect perfect vehicle for smuggling for money laundering right for all sorts of things because once they've traded hands you really don't know i mean oh god the kimberly process kills me everybody's worried about blood diamonds because they saw a movie what is leonardo dicaprio yes it was right around the same time he invested in diamond foundry isn't that interesting interesting almost market manipulation but what if i told you the whole concept of blood diamonds was marketing it was a marketing campaign not to make you stop buying diamonds but to make you stop worrying about where your diamond came from because at the time there was a civil war in sierra leone which is one of a million places diamond diamonds come from okay and a blood diamond is technically just a diamond that was bought by you from a middleman and to be clear there are about a dozen middlemen in between the mine and the person and originally when it was taken out of the mine it was sold and the money from the first sale may have in some way funded this horrific civil war in which children were having arms cut off and it really was terrible and they started calling them blood diamonds and they told every it's the same thing they yeah. told everybody to be worried about it and then they said oh but don't worry we have this un approved kimberly process and the kimberly process is where we trace your diamond and we make sure that that diamond is kimberly approved and that money didn't go to warlords in sierra leone well I have a couple problems with that. First of all, it's bullshit. No, they don't. They have no idea where your diamond's from, for the most part. Yeah. And I mean, unless you have one of those diamonds you see sometimes on the internet, like the Star of Lesotho, it's like 150 carats in a very unusual color. No, no one knows where your 1.5 carat white diamond came from. They really don't. And they yeah. don't care. So it's it's a lie. And also... That civil war in Sierra Leone has been over for a while, but what about all the diamonds that come from El Rosa? That's this gigantic mine in Russia that produces a significant percentage of the annual diamond output. All of that, I mean, Putin owns a significant stake in that mine. Yeah. Personally, are those not blood diamonds? When you go buy a diamond, there's a 50-50 chance it came from Russia. And you just gave money to Putin's regime. And I'm pretty sure that constitutes a blood diamond. And I mean, there are diamonds that come from all over where they're funding people who are doing terrible things. But we only refer to the ones from conflict zones in Africa in a civil war as blood diamonds because it was a marketing technique yeah. to make you feel good about what you were buying. I wonder if, and maybe you, you said this last time or wrote about it in the book, I can't remember, if, if the fact that they're, they are blood diamonds does add some sort of value to the way people perceive it. Like, do you know the Lily Allen yeah. song? There's a Lily Allen song called The Fear, and it starts off, uh, I want to be rich and I want lots of money. I don't care about clever. I don't care about funny. I want lots of clothes and fuck loads of diamonds. I heard people died when they're trying to find them. And that's it. Yeah, that's, that's the whole I, I do right remember there. that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, maybe it adds a certain mystique to it. Like this wasn't cooked in the lab. Somebody had to suffer for this, you know, for this. I thing. forgot that I said that. Yeah, I did say that. Yeah. I said that it, it would be nice to think that humans want something clean. But the truth is, the ugly truth is that we don't. Yeah. We want something 
that somebody got killed trying to get. We want something that other people can't have. I mean, diamonds are the ultimate positional good. It's an economic term that refers to uh, a good that has no intrinsic value. Its value is set according to comparisons to others of its kind within a group. So is my diamond a good diamond? I don't know. I have to check with the woman sitting next to me and look at hers. Mm. Mine's better than hers, then it's a good one. And that makes hers a bad one. But if we're alone in two separate rooms, there really is no intrinsic value. There's no way to say, is this a good one or a bad one? How much is it worth? Do diamonds have, because in my, and I think we talked about this before, but I'm going to ask again anyway. In my mind, diamonds are supposed to be like the hardest substance on earth and they're used for laser beams and to cut through glass and stuff like that. That's rubies. Okay. So that's laser bullshit. beams are rubies. Okay. Um, that's why they're red. Okay. That makes, that, yeah. that makes Okay. Um, that makes sense. So basically everything we know about diamonds is pretty much just a load of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's myth making. And yeah. they were so good at it that they turn it's one of the rare documentable cases of people selling a lie, basically a long con, mm-hmm. so effectively over such a long period of time that in a really messed up way that I explain in The Truth About Lies, it turns into truth. Yeah. So yeah. they stated that diamonds were rare. That was never true. There are tons of them. So they lied about it and they hoarded them and they only sell a few every year. Well, their first lie is diamonds are rare. And then they say diamonds are terribly valuable because they're rare. And you go, well, I guess if they're rare, yes, they are terribly valuable. And then they say, well, so you have to pay this much money to have one. And you do. And when you pay that money, it makes the, fir- the second lie true. They are really valuable. People are going to pay tens of thousands of dollars for them based on the first lie that they're really, really rare. And you really want one. So it's just like a a series of layering of lies where each lie confirms the previous lie until they've basically just redeemed it as truth. Yeah. So the lies become reality. Diamonds are really rare. They're really expensive and you really want one. I think that if there if there is um, a simulation that we're living in, I think the diamond will be able to cut through the the threat the the fabric between the simulation and reality so maybe that's why the diamonds are valuable um you tweeted a little while ago something about and i i I didn't write it down um when they were first putting the sanctions on russia and putin's regime in russia um Mm -hmm. one of the stories that percolated was oh luxury goods are accepted uh, are Mm -hmm. exempted from from the sanctions and people were talking about gucci handbags and shit like that and you said no it's the diamonds that's why yeah yeah, why, why would you mix diamonds, which are basically an economic good? They're like gold bars yeah. in with Gucci loafers and Burberry handbags. That doesn't make sense unless, you know, you're hiding them. You're hiding the fact that what you're actually exempting are sanctions on not just an industry that's worth gazillions of dollars, but uh, like crypto, a viable way for people to still have and launder and use money when they're supposed to be under sanction. Yeah. Yeah. It's clever. I mean, most of the movies that I can think of that have diamonds in them are all movies about how they're smuggling the diamonds out because diamonds have money. Like, you know, lots and lots of things from Marathon Man to, uh, yeah. So we think we're cutting off 
money to Russia, even to the extent that we've stopped buying their oil. Oh my God, How when do Americans stop buying oil? That's a big deal. We think we're really strangling this hydra, except they've got this gigantic mine, El Rosa, that puts out like half the diamonds in the world annually. It's, it's the old De Beers model of, oh, we can't do business here? Well, that's okay, because anytime you buy a diamond, you bought it from us anyway. They're just going to sell those diamonds, and instead of sending the nicer ones to Antwerp, they'll just send them all to India to be cut. And then India will continue to distribute them to the rest of us. And the next time you buy a diamond, you didn't violate those sanctions, but you did buy something from Russia. Interesting. It's it's interesting that people don't know this, that, that so many diamonds come from Russia, because I think yeah. maybe because well, not, De Beers is from South Africa and well, yeah, that too. I mean, it's all myth making. A lot of diamonds come from Canada. No, Canada. Yes. They come from everywhere. They're very common. Are there diamonds in the United States? Yes. Where? I think it's Utah. I mean, they're they're not huge deposits, but but they do exist. I mean, they're not huge deposits is a relative term. It costs so much to create an open pit diamond mine. Yeah. That there have to be just buckets of them down there to make it worthwhile. But okay. yeah, their diamond, their diamond mines all over the US. Montana. Okay. Badlands. Okay. Wow. Who knew? This is all interesting. And um, yeah, I just, it occurs to me that Robert Hansen, the, uh, the FBI double agent guy who was he had in some way in charge of counterintelligence who got arrested for, you know, espionage with, with Russia. Um, like you do. He had diamonds. I mean, they paid him in diamonds. That so was did how. Epstein. Yeah. Well, yep. Epstein had a safe full of diamonds. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to pay someone, especially before Bitcoin. Um, if you're doing something illicit, because at any time you can take those diamonds and turn them into scads of money in any country, in any currency. And no one can look at that diamond and go, Hey, now who paid you and what they pay you for? They can wonder and they should, but the same way the Kimberly process is kind of bullshit because you can't really trace them. You can't really tell where those diamonds came from. Yeah. I mean, it's like gold in that respect. Gold, you could always mm-hmm. just melt down into in it and re- reform it. But gold is much heavier and harder to transport heavier, and more not obvious. Not as valuable. Yeah. yeah all, all of those things. Um, okay, let's let's take a little break now. And we'll be right back with Asia Raiden. So I get this package in the mail, totally unexpected. And I open it up and it, it's a box and it contains 12 little bottles of something called Magic Mind. And I have no idea what this is. I assume my wife ordered it. She did not. And then I realized, oh, this is a sample. These guys might be sponsoring the podcast. That's right. I remember now. So I start taking this stuff. So I start taking this stuff, and it was really well-timed because this was one of the most stressful weeks of my life. Boy, did it help me. So much so that when the first box ran out, I immediately bought more. It ran out, by the way, because my wife saw the Magic Mind and was like, I want some Magic Mind. And then she started taking the Magic Mind, and now we need to have twice as many Magic Minds. Anyway, I am psyched to be teaming up with Magic Mind, and they are offering you, my listeners, 20% off your order when you go to magicmind.co slash prevail and use promo code prevail at checkout. So what I do now, I've established a routine. I take it every morning kind of instead of the second cup of coffee. So like maybe 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I know it's hard to quantify stuff like this and you get the supplement, you know, is it really working? But Magic Mind really does make me more productive. I just, 
I don't know, I just, I'm just more ready to get stuff done. I used to have these days where I would just, I just was not ready to bring it. I would just sit at my desk and stare out the window and there's a to-do list there and I, there's just no way anything was going to get done. I, just, I, I really don't have days like that since taking the Magic Mind. Why this is, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure how it works. I know it has these 12 functional ingredients, including matcha, nootropics that make you focus, and adaptogens that help you fight off stress. Nootropic, by the way, it's N-O-O-tropic. It's a fancy word for a substance that enhances cognition and memory. Magic Mind was featured in Forbes and was called Silicon Valley's New Morning Elixir. The founder... James Bashara became the de facto new tropics guy in Silicon Valley even before he started Magic Mind. And if you're like me, you're trying to keep all the Trump crimes straight and tell Sergey Lavrov from Sergey Peskov from Sergey Kislyak, and you want to get into that kind of creative flow state, I would definitely recommend you give Magic Mind a try. You've got nothing to lose. With their money-back guarantee, any first purchase will be refunded, no questions asked, if it does not meet your expectations. Go to magicmind.co slash prevail and use promo code prevail at checkout for 20% off. Magic Mind, world's first productivity drink. Okay, we're back with Asia Raiden. We're talking about diamonds. Um, you mentioned your book, um, Stoned, which I have here. Um, the subtitle is Jewelry, Obsession, and How Desire Shapes the World. And I just, I, I know I shouted it out before, but it's a really good book for anybody Thank listening you. That, that's, uh, you know, that wants to pick that up. Um, okay, so you mentioned Bitcoin, and I, I really like your take on this, because I, when I started the podcast, you know, about a year ago, I didn't really know very much at all about Bitcoin. So anybody that came on that had some sort of opinion about it, I asked just to try to figure out what was happening, um, you know, pro and con, um, <laughs> con, double meaning there. So, <laughs> yeah, um, but it seems to me that uh, you, what you wrote in the book about it, makes perfect sense to me, which is that it can't be a currency because it's not designed to be spent. It's something that's designed to be hoarded, right? Yeah. Like I, um, when I had, uh, I had Scaramucci on my show, like I, you know, almost, almost a year ago, um, <laughs> great guy, good, really good conversation. And he's a big Bitcoin guy. So after talking to him, I, I read a, a couple of books about it, short books that, you know, just to crystallize my understanding of it. And I bought $500 worth of Bitcoin which I think today is worth like $375. So I was going to say congratulations on not having spent more. Yeah. Um, no, just, just to see what would happen almost as a curiosity. And it's like, I'm never going to spend it because if I, if I take it out now, I've obviously lost money. So I'm not going to do that. If it suddenly goes up to a thousand dollars, I'm not going to take it out because what if it goes up more, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, maybe there's probably some point at which you would try to, you know, pull up, but like, I don't think that it's ever going to spike enough that I, it would ever get to that point because everybody, you know, and their grandmother is, is investing in it because, um, a thousand commercials on the Super Bowl told them to do it. And then it was okay. Those were so fucked up. It's crazy. Right. Uh, it, it's really, I mean, between the, the online sports book and the, and the crypto, it's really, it's, it's a whole yeah, but it makes sense that they put them together. It's all mob, mob, mob. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what's your take on, on crypto now? I mean, I know you wrote about it in the book, but has anything changed with the, the d various permutations of Yeah, of it's things? much worse than I thought it was. And I thought it was bad. Okay. When I, when I wrote that in, and this is not in Stoned, obviously, because it doesn't relate. It's in The Truth About Lies. I wrote about different kinds of lies and each chapter was about a different kind of con. And in the chapter on pyramid schemes, 
I was like, now let's talk about Bitcoin because Bitcoin's a big, big pyramid scheme. There are like 12 people approximately who own like 90% of the Bitcoin on earth. Yeah. And it's only worth anything because you bought $500 worth. That's right. That's how a pyramid scheme works. Everybody at the bottom keeps throwing their money onto the pyre and it trickles upward to the people at the top to inflate the value of what they have. So Bitcoin is absolutely, absolutely a giant pyramid scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. That's, that's it. That's what I wrote, I don't know, a year or two ago two years ago at least, when I was writing that. But it's gotten so much worse because it's the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. It's a multinational global pyramid scheme that involves so many people and so much money that it risks destabilizing the dollar, which sounds like a very nerdy concern when somebody goes, oh, it's gonna destabilize the dollar. And you think, why do I care? What does that mean? Okay, I'll, I'll use Bitcoin, which you can't because you're, you don't use, you don't spend it. It's speculation. You're, you're gambling and you, it's meant to be hoarded. But even if you could spend it, as Americans, we don't want to destabilize the dollar. That's how you end up Venezuela. Yeah. And there are also national security implications. I mean, look at what we just did. This is an interesting period in history that people are gonna study, like dropping a nuclear bomb. This is the first time we, and I hate the way people use the term cancel, but it's the first time we canceled another country yeah. just via exclusion from the dollar. We're like It's, it's economic our- warfare. It's, we, it's, it's an economic act yeah. of war is what it is. Yeah. I mean, people have no fucking idea how, what this means. Uh, it, yeah. It's gonna be yeah. brutal. That country's yeah. gonna be North Korea by June. Yeah. And, it's because we said you can't touch our dollars. Mm-hmm. And we only have the power to do that because the dollar is like the global standard. And if it's not anymore, well, who would volunteer for that? And all those people buying Bitcoin watching the Super Bowl don't understand they're helping destabilize and devalue the dollar and make it not the global reserve currency. And then we can't look at rogue terrorists regimes in North Korea or Russia or whatever and go, you can't use our money and back to the Middle Ages with you. I mean, the other thing about Bitcoin that, that that's puzzling to me and, you know, the, for people that don't haven't read these books or don't understand it, it's basically there are a finite number of Bitcoin in the mm-hmm. world and not all of them are in existence yet. So you mine them, which which takes an enormous amount of energy because it is pegged to something. It's pegged to the price of energy. So the mm-hmm. cost of the fuel or the energy involved with the, the, the to generate the electricity to grind these algorithms or whatever the hell it is on the computers to maybe hopefully mint this coin because the computers are trying to solve this code and the code gives them the coin, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, basically nerds doing math on computers. Yeah. yeah. And if they do enough math, it <laughs> results in a Bitcoin. Yeah, and which is worth, Bitcoin you know, Bitcoin's worth $35,000 or something right now or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So it's not an insignificant amount of money if you happen to get one. But what are you going to do with that? Like, you know, what if there's no electricity tomorrow? I'm going to go to the to the dollar to the store, to the corner store and get a cup of coffee with what? With Your my Bitcoin? Bitcoin? What yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write an IOU. You know, it's going to there's going to be paper script that develops based on the Bitcoin, which is all that dollars are anyway. So it's 
in, in a sense- it, So you can see how it's an attempt to destabilize the dollar. Yes, it's so dependent on, on technology that if something happens with the technology, everything is fucked. Um, mm -hmm. you know. And if something happens with uh, global energy prices in a dramatic fashion, mm -hmm. yeah, it's why it has these wild swings. And it's not a coincidence that people who are heavily invested in oil are also big proponents of Bitcoin as state actors. Well, they just want to, they just want the, uh, the earth to be destroyed sooner rather than later. I mean, because both of those two things are, um, you know, accelerating global warming and climate change and all that, all that stuff. I mean, Ru Russia wants, I mean, Putin, they want global warming because then they can, well, yeah. they can go into the <laughs> yeah, Arctic and get Russia. more oil. You know, I mean, it's just. <laughs> well, no, it's not just about oil. It's um, so say 25 years from now, this continues unabated. The East Coast will be underwater. The West Coast will be underwater. Uh, further inland, the, the whole southern half of the East Coast will be a big, fetid, mosquito-infested, disease-ridden swamp. Uh, the Plains states will have dried up and blown away from the heat and the lack of rain. And the entire not West Coast, because it'll be underwater from rising sea levels, but further inland, what's left of it will be like the Badlands. It'll be really uninhabitable. So where's the breadbasket of the world now? If it's not Iowa, it might be Mongolia. Yeah. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking it'll be warm, it'll be balmy, people can vacation in Siberia, and they will produce all of the food. And basically, they get to be America, if it gets hot enough. Yeah. And that's psychotic and it sounds like the plot of a really bad movie, but there are people whose intentions are thus. Just, you know, let it, let's let it go. Let's let it get really hot. That'll work for us. Yeah. Well, and it makes, I mean, it makes sense, you know, um, or they just don't think about it at all. They just only give a shit about themselves in the present. I think that's part of it too. Yeah. It's, I think it's, it was for a long time, the future and the present caught up with each other. And, uh, when I was little, everybody talked about global warming and how it would be terrible in the future. And now there are tornadoes that destroy whole cities and there are famines because it doesn't rain for two years in a country. And it, it is terrible right now, even if you only care about yourself. And some of the some of the temperatures are too hot to live. Yeah. You know, when it gets to be 120 you know, degrees in place for a certain length of time, it's you know, good luck with that because it's bad. Mm -hmm. and, and everybody's industry is changing. You know, French wine is grown in England now. No, I did not know. Majority that. I mean, of it. I knew that the French wine is all, you know, after they had that, whatever, the, the, the pest, pestilence that killed all the, all the mm -hmm. grape things, that they got it all from California in like the 1800s anyway. So French wine is really from, Cal all of it is from California now. They and can't now grow it in France anymore. So uh, Tattinger, I'm saying that wrong, Tattinger, I don't know. Not a big drinker. They've bought up huge swaths of Kent and turned them into turned them into vineyards. So French wine, most of it, comes from England. And they're having trouble growing tulips in Holland now because the weather isn't right. They're gonna have to grow them in Norway. And Kentucky bourbon is now possibly gonna have to be Minnesota bourbon. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. This stuff, a lot of this stuff is all fleeting anyway but these are these are scary things i mean you associate these you know th there has been wine grown in france and in italy 
you know, since the, the days of the Romans mm -hmm. and probably well before that. So that's an awful lot of change in a very short period of time. Scary, scary stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. So what do you think is going to happen with this Bitcoin thing? You think it's going to like all Ponzi schemes just explode? Eventually, are the yes. Are the Winklevoss twins going to be OK? I don't care. <laughs> um, no, um, uh, yeah, because they are among the huge, huge Bitcoin holders. Mm -hmm. And I mean, poor Elon Musk. Every time he needs more cash, he stokes his minions on the internet to go crazy about this Bitcoin or this crypto or that. Um, are they going to be okay? Yes, the people at the top of the pyramid are already, they are always okay because they already got all your money. People yeah. at the bottom of the pyramid who are not. And unfortunately, this pyramid is so big, it could wipe out whole economies. And um, that will probably happen. Uh, it'll be much worse than the housing bubble. And there are people, other than me, people whose job it is to care about these things. And some of them have already started trying to gradually let the air out of that balloon so it doesn't burst by not sanctioning, but essentially regulating yeah. how you can buy it, how you can use it. I think they're trying to slow walk it backwards so it doesn't just go boom. Because yeah. when it does, just it's going to be economic devastation across numerous countries. That's Maybe that's the only thing that that's hopeful about it is that it won't just be in one place and it, maybe it will be diffuse enough that it won't fuck up nope. everything too badly. Nope. nope. That's not how that works. <laughs> Remember the global financial meltdown? I see. The reason I, it was a yeah. meltdown was because it was everywhere. Yeah. All yeah. the banks had been trading money and trading mortgage-backed securities and bundled. I mean, people in China, investors in China were buying interest in you paying your mortgage here in America, just you, Greg. Yeah. Uh, it was a disaster because it was so many tentacles in so many countries. It's never better when it's more places like World War One, all of those interlocking <laughs> treaties and Serbian dude shoots somebody and we're off to the races and the whole world's at war. <laughs> this will not be better because it's everywhere. So, OK, so let's let, let's put a little let's put a little pin in that. You've you've said now compared that the um, the coming Bitcoin meltdown is World War One, basically. OK, good. No, more but like <laughs> a global financial meltdown in 2008. So, and sometimes things do 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 fan out. I mean, the Great Depression started in the United States. You know, there was things happening in Germany and stuff, you know, between the war. But the Depression started in the United States and we mm -hmm. exported it to the world. So good for us. Um, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we uh, exported our poor financial sense to everybody. Yeah. We're Americans and we like to gamble. Buy land in Florida. Ask Matt Damon. <laughs> um. The Matt Damon ad is just crazy. I mean, it's, it's just, so bad. I can't believe him. Oh, man. I already have like blood sugar and insulin problems. I don't need that kind of impetus to throw up. Just <laughs> no trigger warning, nothing. They throw it up on the screen and I'm like. Bleh. Fortune favors the bold. Fortune favors friends of Harvey Weinstein, you jackass. <laughs> Oh, man. When I see the commercials, I'm like, how much money do these people need? Like, is he really like hard up? Like, you know, well, I don't know. I, I know uh, Ben Affleck did an ad and I know he has a gambling problem. So maybe he owes people money. I mean, Ben Affleck did an ad for the gambling app. 
you know, which is so, hilarious. I'm is not hilarious. taking your advice about gambling, Ben Affleck. Um, haven't you been to rehab for it a few times? It is no a good, shame. It's a like, good ad, though. It really but, is. A good yeah, ad. like no, no shame to people who have gambling problems, especially if they, you know, go get, go get treatment. But, but then the the moral decay that would cause you to get paid to do an ad telling people to gamble that's shown to children during a sporting event is, yeah. I mean, he's either a sociopath or he owes somebody some money. That's I don't I know. Yeah, it's not it's not a good look. It's it, it's disappointing. And I feel like, you know, not not to sound like Anthony Comstock or one of these like, you know, puritanical. Uh, oh, no, we're all for vice here. Yeah, vice is, is fantastic. I mean? But I, I I'm not a fan of of uh, of showing it to, to the kids on the thing. And there, there's something to be said for gambling being slightly hard to do, um, you know, if, yeah. it, if it adds, well, it's almost like with like gun- a blood diamond, it does make it more fun, doesn't it? Yeah. If you think you're doing something illicit, not something advertised to children on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that does make it but just that's like important. With guns, you know, let's, okay. Like if I keep my gun in a safe in my mm-hmm. house, then at least I know that I have to go to the safe, open the safe up, get the gun, load it before I use it. Whereas if I just yeah. have it on me, you know, and you pose for Christmas pictures with your kids with their machine guns. Or I'm just out, out and about and somebody cuts me off. You know, I might be like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to take oh, this God, guy I out. I could never own a gun for that reason. I have such bad road rage. Well, there's reason for bad road rage. And the reason is bad drivers. You know, I have road rage issues. I definitely should never have a weapon. No, it's not good. You know, with the gambling, it should be like that. Like if I have to. OK, I have to be in Las Vegas now to gamble on sports events. Yeah. So. I will fly there. I'll place bets. And that's going to be a thing that I have to do and plan for. Mm-hmm. Whereas I can't be, you know, drunk at eight o'clock at night being like, oh, let's, let's do the inline, you know, the, uh, the in-game betting on who wins the Knicks Nets game today. You know, that's yeah. where people get in trouble. I think. But I it's important, think. honestly, it's not just about people getting in trouble. It's important that it's being sold like this because Half the time, people don't know when they're being sold something. And the other half of the time, they know they're being sold something and they might think about the thing, but they never ask why they're being sold something. Mm, Why are we being sold sports betting at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning? It it does take some of the sexiness away from it. You're not at a speakeasy anymore. You're, you're, You're gambling from your phone 24 hours a day. Boy, that's mundane. So... What are they doing? Why are they showing this to children? I don't think they're trying to get children to gamble. But when you watch an ad for something in front of your child, you unconsciously feel the Overton window shift. Yeah. And it's not a big deal anymore. Yeah. It's normalizing you know, it. There was no said. sex on, on network TV when I was little. And now there is. And it's been normalized. And you sit there watching Bridgerton and your kid walks past and you're like, it's just TV. But yeah. yeah they're normalizing gambling as part of your day-to-day economic existence. Now, yep. who would benefit from that? I know everyone's tired of hearing about organized crime, but, but that's who benefits from everyone gambling 24 hours a day. Yeah. I mean, for lots of different reasons, not just the economic, but the, you know, owing people favors and all, all kinds of stuff. It, it's uh yeah. And it's sad because, you know, people have it's an addiction. It's a real bona fide addiction and it really ruins people's lives. And it's it's very sad. And um, 
it's exploitative, I feel, to, um, you know, to advertise in that, in that sense, in that way, in your face like that. You know? If you can't advertise cigarettes to children, why can you advertise gambling? Yeah, it, it makes no sense to me. Um, none at all. Uh, okay, the next topic I want to discuss with you, because we've, we've talked about this before offline, is fascism. This is all fun stuff we're talking about today. It's all this like, is, yeah, it's, it's all it's sunshine and roses. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about fascism and global <laughs> financial meltdowns. So you said to me that the rise of anti-Semitism anywhere is always sort of augurs the rise of fascism. Yeah. And uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because there's clearly there, there is a rise in that in yeah. anti-Semitism in the United States right now. We've got literal Nazis in Florida right now. You know, yeah. literally in, in uh, not regalia. just in Florida. People yeah. like to think they're just in Florida, but I live in Beverly Hills. And one day we all woke up to these Nazi flyers slapped to our doors with swastikas and and Jewish stars and pentagrams that said every part of the COVID conspiracy was from Jews. And it was like, oh, my God, is this the Middle Ages? We're getting blamed for a plague now. And it listed everybody at the CDC and their name and said Jew. And it was just it was alarming, to say the least. And I mean, there were enough of them that that it was covered by the news that they did this and yeah. all over Beverly Hills. And then they did it again a few months later. And I think they did it in Huntington Beach at one point. And so you can actually Google it and you can see a picture of one of those flyers. What it is, is not even unique to the U.S. There is just this seething, growing anti-Semitic sentiment everywhere which is terrifying because historically there's always like a low level simmer of anti-Semitism yeah. that you may or may not be aware of if you're not Jewish. If you are, you're aware of it, but it's, you know, as long as, as long as they keep it at like a, a polite low simmer, we don't make a big deal out of it because we get in trouble when we make a big deal out of anything. And then suddenly it'll boil over somewhere. Yeah. And everybody has to run away. Pogroms in Russia, inquisitions in Spain, holocausts in Germany, you know the drill. The thing is, every time that happens, sort of the way, you know how right before it starts to rain, it gets really windy out of nowhere? Yeah. And then you're like, oh shit, it's going to rain. The wind didn't cause the rain. It was just a really good predictor that that was about to happen. And these big blowups in anti-Semitism were all of a sudden out of nowhere there are real Nazis, you know, slapping flyers on my door or waving banners or marching in Charlottesville or whatever. People who 10 years ago either kept their thoughts to themselves or didn't even think they were anti-Semites. When that happens, it, it's like wind before rain. It's anti-Semitism before fascism. It always happens. They always correlate. And the anti-Semitism doesn't cause the fascism. It just predicts it. Yeah. Because... Well, for a few reasons, but, you know, one of them is that people don't realize they are being whipped up into a frenzy by individuals who have a stake in democracy going away yeah. in any given place, in any given time or whatever system of government they have. And part of it is, I, I think, I think the way I said it to you was just that we're it's, it doesn't really even have anything to do with us. It's not even about Jewish people. It's just that we're the people everybody can get behind getting against. <laughs> we're the one group you can pretty much sell anybody on. You don't like them, right? Do you think they caused COVID? Like, 
and um, and we live everywhere. So it works. In yeah, any I think country. that's the, I think that's that's more the key. I was thinking about it, um, you know, knowing we were going to talk about it. And it's like th- these fascist uh, governments and these movements rise up. And one of the first things they do is blame someone for supposed grievances. And mm-hmm. the person has to be something that someone, uh, some group that's inauthentically part of the larger group. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah we're historically suspicious yeah. because we're stateless. So, you know, that's a big part of anti-Semitism is yeah. questioning your alliance to the country you live in. People right. are like, you're not really German. You're not really French. It's like, well, okay, but where am I from? I was born here. I'm American. Yeah. And the other part of it is, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, we live everywhere. And that's also, uh, I think it's an important component of genuine anti-Semitism, not the kind you whip people into a frenzy over. And then they later go, why did I do what, what happened? You know, like after World War II, Um, but genuine anti-Semitism, I think a lot of it is, is just, it has nothing to do with us and it has nothing to do with people who don't like us. It's just that nobody likes, and nobody wants to admit this kind of like they want a blood diamond. Nobody likes foreigners. They freak out about it. And we're just the people who have already met everyone. We've lived in every country. We've settled in every country for thousands of years. So this sort of universal resentment or distrust is not about us or other people. It's just, we've met you. So you've had the opportunity to dislike us. Yeah. Whereas it's not like, you know, there, there, it's not like there are large Yazidi communities in Canada or, or South Africa, it's just being from somewhere else and then living in a country, however long you live there, it doesn't matter. You're a small minority group of of perceived foreigners. And so it's very easy when people are already under stress to convince them that these people are the source of their problem. And fascists do that. They whip people into a frenzy about suspicious foreigners. And it's almost always us. Trump tried to do it with caravans of people coming yeah. from Mexico, but it didn't didn't really work that well. Yeah. And uh, it tells you that they're active, basically. It's like, you know, you get a fever and you're like, oh, I must have been exposed to a germ that's active now. Mm-hmm. They're active. They're freaking people out. They're they're holding Nazi rallies. And it's scary to me because it's not just Florida. It's not just Beverly Hills. It's everywhere, which yeah. means the entire world is teetering on the brink of fascist government overthrows. Do you think, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Um, I, I hate to ask predict <laughs> predict the future questions for obvious Area reasons. Area woman Baba Yaga. How yeah. is this going to end? <laughs> but I feel like, you know, we're, we're in such an inflection point right now because, again, it, it's it's Sunday, March 13th, who knows what's going to happen even by the time this airs, whether it's Friday or next Friday or whatever um, in Russia and with Putin and all that stuff. But I feel like I think he's toast. Well, he's toast, but when his own security services are going to take him out. At at what point? Um, I'm I'm the question is at what point will we find out about it? Cause I think he'll be dead for a while before anybody tells us. Mm, Maybe he's dead now. Ooh, I like like Have you seen him lately? I haven't. Yeah, we, he came to, I saw him at, uh, at Whole Foods when I went shopping. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but, the, um, <laughs> there, there's, uh, 
it's an inflection <laughs> point. I, I, I'm like, I don't even know what to say now. No, I feel like there, <laughs> it is like it's it's like one of these times when there's we're going to do battle between good and evil, and I feel like the bad guys yes. have been winning. The bad guys have been almost like in volleyball. They they've held serve or in tennis, right? They've held serve for the last five years, certainly. You know, the whole time of Trump, and then. You know, they've also the been first... playing tennis without us for 20 years because they convinced us the Cold War was over. And we were like, great, yeah. we're all friends. You want a Big Mac? And they were like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And meanwhile, they were buying controlling interests in technology companies and like Facebook and and honing cyber warfare. And we the whole time we were like, isn't it great the way history's over? And, you know, I, I think uh, I think the biggest victory that. Putin has had or will ever have when the Kremlin in general was convincing us we weren't at war for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they, they did a masterful job. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, but like you said, you know, we haven't even been playing the game and they've been like quietly acing us on every serve, but mm -hmm. now I feel like we're finally getting the fucking racket. Right. And, mm -hmm. and Biden is like, okay, here we go. And, I don't know what's going to happen because we're a little bit rusty with this stuff. But so far, I I haven't even said anything on. I know people get really emotional about it. Obviously, what's happening in Ukraine is horrible, and I don't want to see anyone die that shouldn't die. But I also I it's so complicated because the guy Putin is obviously either insane or, uh, you know, he's backed into a corner, and God mm. knows what he will do. And there really is. I don't think he will use nuclear weapons, even if he wanted to. I don't think that uh, there's some debate about whether he has them, that the people there would allow you it. Know? Yeah. Or if they work or any of that stuff. Exactly. But They've been we selling nuclear to, fuel for decades. There's definitely a way to do this while killing the fewest amount of people. Right. And, and Biden and his diplomatic team and, and Kamala Harris, and everybody else, I think have handled this really, really well so far, like really well. Like, mm -hmm. so I'm reluctant to even criticize anything at this point. Like if I have Biden is saying X, then he's got a good reason to say it. And that maybe we should just trust that he's going to do the right thing here. Um, so far, I think he's earned the, the, the trust. But uh, again, by Friday, I might, have, I might have changed my mind. So I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? Well, globally? I, have a like few, a, I have a few thoughts. Yeah, and, go. And, uh, with regard to Biden. Yeah, I think he's doing a spectacular job. It's one of my favorite things about him as president is that he's so nice. But man, has he got brass knuckles in his pocket. Yeah. And he takes them out when it's time. And have, we've seen him do it a couple times already. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I am not worried that he is unwilling or unprepared or incapable of fucking up Russia. Uh, that's not really my concern. And what you were saying about, you know, well, he's done a good job, so I kind of feel like maybe I should just go with it. I'm of two minds about that. Uh, having grown up in this country and being the age that I am, which is just the right age to have spent my entire life watching insane wars in the Middle East for no reason that people lied about. Mm -hmm. Part of me is like, oh yeah, fuck that guy. I mean, I'm, I'm going to do my own research, so to speak. <laughs> um, but, but you're right. We're at an, this is more like World War II. We're at an inflection point where there's no moral ambiguity about what's going on. No, none. They're just going to kill everyone and level Ukraine. And they already did it in Syria. And no one seemed to care at the time, which really bothers me. Yeah. And um, then they're, they're not going to stop there. 
So this really is that kind of good versus evil war that we all saw movies about with Tom Hanks and like a million of them and they're all interchangeable. And as much as it makes me bristle the idea that in wartime, you're supposed to just support the president and say, aye, aye, sir, to whatever he says, that's true. That, that is how you all get in lockstep and you win a war. Yeah. I just have trouble with it because I grew up with presidents lying about weapons of mass destruction and then having crazy wars. So every time I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I know that's really what we should be doing, but also I don't want to, and I'm not sure why. And I bet most people feel that way because yeah. it's been 20, 30 years of bullshit. Yeah. Just bullshit. Just war over money and oil. And, and um, the thing is, oftentimes, when you identify the source of your irrational feelings, they go away. So for anybody listening, if you feel that way, it might be uh, George Bush's fault. And <laughs> you should meditate on that for a minute and then let it go. Because this really, this really is going to have to be a team effort like all of NATO and all of Americans and just get in line with it. I think Putin's done for. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think his security, he's lost his spies and his secret police and everybody's so focused on oligarchs. They don't realize those are human wallets. They're not going to kill him. They're cowards. And they're just like a bunch of fat old men. And they mostly want this to stop so they can go back to banging their mistress in the Maldives. Yep. The people who are going to take him out are his own security apparatus. Patrushev. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's probably why he has 40 foot long tables. Absolutely. And uh, I don't think we'll necessarily know when it happens, which is the problem. We're all looking at this like it's a video game. Like if we beat the boss, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not over. <laughs> Somebody else will take his place. And yes, they'll probably not bother killing him if they aren't going to try to make this stop because it's hurting them. But it's complicated because we all want to protect Ukraine. We want to make them stop what they're doing to Ukraine. But at the same time, what they're doing to Ukraine and what we're doing to them in response is uniting the Russian people in a way no one has seen since the fall of the Soviet Union. And if his security apparatus kills him, a different creep will take his place. If yeah. the CIA goes and kills him and puts in regime change, it'll just be a different dictator. For it to stick, for it to matter, for Russia to be a democracy, the only people Putin's really scared of have to get him. And that's Russian people. They have yeah. to get rid of him themselves. And it's hard. It's excruciating to watch because God, it's going slowly. Yeah. But you have to understand these people have no living memory or even generational memory of self-rule. Their grandparents lived in the Soviet Union and they grew up with Putin. And, and before the Soviet Union, there were just bad czars. So yeah. the, 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 the leadership of Russia, if you look back, is, is, is really bad. I mean, horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote about Fabergé eggs and yeah. Russian money laundering in stone. There's a whole chapter about it. And I don't remember what I was talking about, but at one point I said something about Russian history and czars. And I said, you know, like everything about Russian history, it's baffling yeah. because it's just, 
It's it's almost like somebody wrote it as a dark comedy. It couldn't be any worse. Oh, wait, it's worse. <laughs> and, and so I feel like you have to have a little patience with the these people who this is their culture, this is their history. From where would they get the balls to demand democracy? And given the information bubble they live in, how much do they even understand about how it works? So there's that. But I think ultimately what, what is in the balance here is how long does NATO let Ukraine be beaten senseless versus how long is it gonna take Russians to overthrow their own government? And I think there's probably a little bit of a gamble going on there. Yeah, it's a game of hoping chicken. Hoping Ukraine can hold out yeah. long enough because if we intercede, which we could, NATO could roll into Ukraine, make this stop in a hot minute, and if they wanted to keep marching east yep. and then end up in Moscow, the Russian military is, is it's flattering to say a paper tiger. It's a big, rusted out, non-functioning tank from the Soviet era. It, it doesn't do anything. These people have never fought in a real war. Half of them don't want to. They're children. It would be no big task at all to just win that war yeah. for NATO. But the minute we do, everybody in Russia is suddenly told, see, see, the West is coming for you. They hate us. This was their fault. They're big bullies and they just killed your sons. And I think that's part of the reason that, that this maddening restraint is being shown, not really because anybody thinks he's going to nuke someone. He's not. Yeah. Now, that's a good point. It, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. By setting it up, the propaganda that way, he's given himself a, a line of defense. But mm -hmm. I also feel like, you know, within the borders of a country, that country needs to be self-determinate to a degree. So that, you know, as with the first Gulf War, which people listen to my podcast are tired of hearing me talk about the first Gulf War. But, you know, Saddam went into Kuwait. We made him leave Kuwait and we did not go get him. We just said, that's it. You're done. Um and there was a lot of people that that criticized that move, but it worked. It was effective. It stopped his imperial ambitions forever. And the, the, the mistake that Putin made here is going into a sovereign nation. You're not allowed to do that. You cannot do that. It will not stand. So getting him out of Ukraine is the goal here. You know, mm -hmm. going into Russia and having regime change, then you're then you're looking at a whole other thing that we, you know, we haven't had a very good success with that. In the last or we've had a lot of really good success with it and you don't hear about the successful ones <laughs> which i suspect is more the case that could be we, we I mean, used to be very good doing Look, it if it didn't work sometimes it worked in germany and it worked in japan after mm -hmm. world war ii it worked in 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 other countries after world war ii so it, it doesn't not work but um and maybe and i think in a place like russia it could probably work well but you know there's it, a it lot going work on okay but it would be a band-aid it yeah. would be we've replaced your dictator with a dictator that's slightly friendlier to us and your neighbors. Whereas if they do this themselves, that really is a watershed moment historically. Yes. Yep. And ah, no, no hatred to Russians, but the country itself has been dragging us back for hundreds of years by refusing to live in the same century as the rest of us, whatever century it is. They're just like, nah, nah. I mean, they still had serfs in, in like yeah. the 1800s and the rest of the world had 
pretty much gotten rid of that right after the Black Plague. So if yeah. they overthrow their own government and go, we want some kind of democracy and we're definitely going to elect someone you find appalling because that always happens. Americans always go, yeah, democracy, do it. And then they have the right to choose and they choose something they like. And we're like, are you fucking serious? That's what you wanted? You voted for like a cleric? I, um, I think that after Trump, we're not allowed to ever say that again. <laughs> well, after who we elected, <laughs> you know, we're allowed to say it, but it doesn't diminish the fact that sovereign nations are allowed to elect whoever the hell they want. Yeah. And that if they manage it, they'll probably elect someone we don't like and everybody will be like, oh, that wasn't worth it. But but the point is. They will no longer be existing in a different century than the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. They will have joined the modern world and it will isolate China in a huge way. And I mean, if you think a successful democracy on Russia's doorstep was destabilizing to Russian fascism, which is the big argument about Ukraine, he has to kill them because they're a successful, thriving democracy and they they have cousins and parents in Russia who are like, but what? Huh? Yeah. Why can you have nice things? What is this democracy you speak of? If that was destabilizing to Russia, just little Ukraine, if Russia has a revolution and becomes some sort of democracy, what will that do to China? That's, <laughs> that will really come up. Wow. That's a real shift in the weather. Yeah, that's, that's, that's too much. That's too much to think about. <laughs> well, but, but you you're have right. to. You're right. It's when a good you're point. thinking about something, you have point. to game it out 10 steps further than you're interested in. Yeah. Will yeah. it make them more hostile because they're cornered? Will it make the people in China go, wait a minute, what's happening? Maybe we want to vote um, because, you know, they are watching Russia as a test case. It's why they haven't invaded Taiwan yet. It's yeah. not going well for Russia. And it's it's such a big country and it's such a big part of the the axis of assholes right now that if that were to change. It really would change the political climate of the world. Yeah. It really would be, you know, most of us are in the 21st century being democracies. The rest of you don't want to think about it. Yeah, I think we all need to get get into the 21st century. Um, yeah, there's a lot to think about. This was a good discussion, Asia. Thank you for coming on. Sure. Um, so, OK, so the documentary is called Nothing Lasts Forever. When can we actually watch this? Well, I don't know when this is playing, but um, right now, Okay. Today, today, it just premiered at South by Southwest. Okay. And once that's over, I think it lasts about a week, they're going to run it in theaters. But if you don't want to go to a movie theater, after that, it will stream on Showtime. So okay. in probably uh, eight weeks. Okay. So we'll look for that on Showtime. That's called Nothing Lasts Forever. Um, and you have two books here on my, on my desk. Stoned, which we talked about, The Truth About the Lies. And we can find you on the Twitter at Asia yeah. Raiden, A-J-A-R-A-D-E-N. Mm -hmm. And there's a preview for the movie. Oh, yeah, it's good. Movie. I'll, I'll, yeah, put, it in, it I'll put it in the uh, in the show notes. The preview is good. So I'm excited to see the movie. It's going to be good. So um, I'm thank you so much. To see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be good. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, 
Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.